But if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 1. Mitch, you can just bring it down just a tad. I've been wanting to come to this book for quite a while. Probably you have too, not knowing where we were going, just to get away from Romans for a while, you know. But um, the book of Daniel is such a wonderful, wonderfully written book, and um, I've never had the opportunity to sort of teach through it, you know, or present messages through it. Uh, certainly we look at portions of it, most often with regard to the prophetic message that is found in the book of Daniel, but that really is not its key. That's not the heart and soul of the book of Daniel as I've come to read through it and began to study it and come to understand it a little bit more. But uh, what it's really about is much of what we sung about this morning, what we just heard, by way of God's sovereignty and his control over everything. I thought this would be a wonderful book to come to at this time because within another few weeks, we're going to be voting for the next president, vice president of the United States. And so when I think of governmental change and administrative change, uh, well, Daniel was living during a time where there was a major governmental change, administrative change, and Daniel found himself serving in a foreign land. How does one go about serving, living, working, interacting in the world in which we find ourselves, in the country in which we find ourselves, um, in such a manner that God is praised and that he is glorified? Daniel sort of instructs us, models those kinds of things for us. So I thought this would be a good time to take a look at the book of Daniel. Certainly there are profound prophetic portions in the book of Daniel. And when we think of what is transpiring in the Middle East and what is happen happening as this Islamic insurgency is just growing and engulfing the land of Israel and the nation of Israel, well, it behooves us to turn our attention to what the Word of God has to say about what is transpiring even as we are observing this in the media and on television. Uh, in newspapers and other and on the, in the internet, of course. All of these kinds of things have begun to sort of impact itself upon me. And I thought, you know, the book of Daniel would be a wonderful book for us to take some time and uh, to go through. Now, the book of Daniel is fascinating on a number of respects, but it is that book that is tucked away between the books of Ezekiel and the books of the Minor Prophets, the book of Hosea. In our Bibles, as well as in the Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek some 150 years before the time of Messiah, and in the writings of Josephus, Daniel is listed among the prophets. But in the Jewish Scriptures, the book of Daniel finds itself among the writings. You know, in the Jewish scriptures, there are mainly three sections to the Hebrew scriptures. There's the Torah, five books of Moses, the law. There is the Ketuvim, the writings, the poetical type books like Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon and others. And then you have the Nevi'im, the prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel. But Daniel was not listed or at least clumped 
together with the other prophetic writings in the Hebrew scriptures. And the reason for that is sort of interesting because nowhere in the book of Daniel is Daniel referred to as a prophet. He's referred to as a seer. He's a prayer, he is referred to as a man of wisdom, a wise man. He is certainly a governmental official. But the only one that refers to Daniel as a prophet is Yeshua in Matthew 24 when he tells us about that unholy one who would stand in the temple and, and create the abomination that makes desolate as spoken by the prophet Daniel is what Yeshua, uh, Yeshua's comment is. So it's kind of interesting, again, that Daniel, though a prophet, his position was not so much of or as a prophet, but was really a statesman, a governmental official, one who had served in four different administrations. He served under one of the greatest rulers of all history, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He served and ended his ministry under the reign of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And in between, he served under two other leaders. His ministry starts when he's only 15, 17 years old. He lives into his 90s. And so he has a very full-orbed ministry in a foreign, foreign land. He's taken captive when he's a very young man. Now, in order to understand some of these things, you have to step back and take a look at some of the historical developments that unfolded during the time of Daniel. And by the way, Daniel not only is mentioned by Yeshua, but he's also mentioned three times by the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 14 and also in chapter 28. Twice in chapter 14, once in chapter 28. And he was recognized by these other Jewish leaders, such as Ezekiel. But he also ministered at a time when Jeremiah served. And he's taken captive by the Babylonians around 600 B.C. That is about 600 years before the time of Messiah Yeshua. And his ministry spans a time from about 600 to about 535, 536 or so. He's taken as a young man because what happens is at the time that Daniel is growing up, the Assyrians are the dominant empire. They've already taken away the northern kingdom of Israel captive 721, about 120 years or so before the time of Nebuchadnezzar. But around 605, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are growing in power, and they are desirous of expanding their empire. So they march their armies northeast of Babylonia, and they encounter the Assyrian army at a place called Carchemish. And in that conflict, the Assyrians are devastated, and they are destroyed. And by the Assyrian army being devastated at this particular place, it opens up the land routes west. And so Nebuchadnezzar is able to now easily move his forces through the Fertile Crescent 
Going from north, was the southeast to northwest, the Battle of Carchemish, and then down south into the land of Israel. By 600, he invades the southern kingdom of Judah, and he takes it captive. It's on this occasion that Daniel and other young men like him, who are considered to be wiser than others, more knowledgeable, youthful, and intellectual than others, are taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. With him, we know of three other individuals, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that are taken captive with him, and a host of others who are not named. And they're brought to Babylon. In 597, some three years later, The king of Judah, Jehoiakim, who was warned by Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and no less Nebuchadnezzar, do not ever attempt to rebel against me, decides to rebel against him. Not a very wise choice on his part. But when he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, after having been subservient for some five years or eight years or so, Nebuchadnezzar moves his forces again into Israel. And this time, not only does he just capture Jerusalem, but now he pillages the temple. And he takes many of the temple vessels, and he takes them with him back to Babylon. And he places them in the temple of his God in Babylon. About 10 years later, 597, under the reign of Zedekiah, Judah attempts to rebel for a third time. Again, not a very wise decision. Jeremiah, Ezekiel had already told them, be prepared for exile and submit yourself to the Babylonian ruler. But Zedekiah decides to attempt to rebel. This time, Nebuchadnezzar moves his troops again into Judah. Now he no longer just captures Jerusalem, no longer just takes the vessels from the temple, but destroys the temple. This occurs on the ninth day of the month of Av, which we observe as a day of fasting and mourning over the destruction of Solomon's temple, which occurred in 597 by Nebuchadnezzar. This third rebellion just devastates the land of Judah and the people of Israel. And more are taken captive and made exile into Babylon. It's during this time that the foundations of rabbinic Judaism are laid. It's during this time that the synagogue comes into reality. As Jews cast off their land, gathers together in assembly houses in places of worship where they can carry on prayers and worship without the temple, without the sacrifice, without all the accoutrements that were made for temple worship. And now in 596, 597, the temple is destroyed and Israel now must settle in for a long time of captivity. It would not be until 536, 70 years from the time that Daniel and his friends were deported to Babylon, that the Jewish people would be permitted under the Persian ruler to return back to the land of Israel. 
Now, if you look at Daniel chapter 1, we're told that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, put it in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They went to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now isn't it interesting in the very opening verse, which really gives us the theme of the book of Daniel, that there's no mention in verse 1 to 3 or so that Nebuchadnezzar carries off to captivity choice individuals from the land of Israel. Choice men, young men. They're explained to us in verse 3. But in verses 1 and 2, the focus is not on the people. In fact, the book of Daniel doesn't tell us the story of the people that were taken. doesn't even tell us the story of Daniel. tells us episodes in Daniel's life. tells us of a couple of episodes in Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's lives. But we know nothing really about their lives as such. The book of Daniel is not about Daniel. The book of Daniel is not about these righteous men. Indeed, the book of Daniel is not even about Nebuchadnezzar. The book of Daniel is about God. And it is about his sovereignty. Take a look very closely what it says in verse 2. It is the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. There are many occasions that we read about the book of Judges or the book of Kings or Samuel, how God delivers his people from his enemies, but this is not one of those cases. Here in the book of Daniel, this is a case in which God has delivered the Israelites into the hands of their enemies. And so it is God who has given the ability, the authority, the right to attack his own people. The problem is, and this is one that we all must learn, sometimes the hard way, that God is in control of all things, both good and bad. And if we ever ignore that fact, God will remind us of it in the ways that he can. Take a look at Daniel chapter 4, for example. Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful man. And he was a great man, we would say, from our vantage point. And if we lived at that time, from their vantage point. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who had constructed the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven great wonders of the world, to be compared to the great pyramid at Giza. 
to be compared to that great statue, I forget what it was called, that stood at the harbor entrance of Italy. That great statue the, that was just a, uh, a colossus. And I think that's what it was called, the colossus. The col- what's that? Colossus of Rhodes. Thank you, Miss. Just watch the fun. <laughs> the Colossus of Rhodes. And all of these uh, things, all of these, cons- these projects were like of a glorious nature. Nebuchadnezzar is responsible for one of those. And so he says in chapter 4, in verse 29, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace, as he's looking out over the city of Babylon, as he's walking among those hanging gardens with all of its beauty and, you know, just this lush in the place in the middle of Babylon, what is today Iraq. And he said, is not this the great Babylon? I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was right about all that. He certainly did build it. He certainly did build it for his own glory and for his own majesty. Not too often in scripture do we read of God speaking from heaven, but this is one of those occasions. And so in verse 31, it says the words when they were still on his lips, that a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Wow. I thought you just had to have enough money in order to wage the right kind of campaign. I thought you had to have the right look so that when you appear on television and when you appear in, you know, photographs, you've got the right look. I thought you had to have the right vocabulary and that you had to have the right kinds of arguments and you had to be a good debater in order to present your point of view. If we think that, God will remind us that he gives kingdoms to whom he wishes not to those who think they can garner it and gain it by their own ingenuity. And so Nebuchadnezzar, who built all of this for his own glory, will soon be reminded that it is God who permitted him to do what he has done. And it will be God who will take it away from him when he so desires and sees that that is the fit thing to do. In verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven from the people and he ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and the nails like the claws of a bird. The more one sort of attributes their own accomplishments to their own power, Rather than to the grace of God, we become more and more 
beast-like and less God-like in whose image we have been created. And indeed, we become worse than beast-like because at least the beasts act like beasts. But here a man is acting not like a man, but is acting like the beast. And not just any beast, but the conglomeration of a variety of beasts. And thus he begins to disintegrate and he begins to become less than who he was prior to his pride. This is not unlike the evil one who we are told in Isaiah 7 and Ezekiel chapter 14, the two most important passages perhaps on the story and the fall of the evil one. And we find that he was one who had all beauty. He was one who had all wisdom, not in the sense that God has all beauty and all wisdom. So please do not, mis- please do not misunderstand me. But as one of God's creations, he was the most beautiful of all God's creations. He was the most wise of all God's creations. He was the most privileged of all God's creations, for he stood in closest proximity to the very throne of God and into the very presence of God himself. But because in Isaiah chapter 14, I think it's recorded, five times he says, I will ascend to the height, I will set up my throne, I will, I will, I will. His pride, like Nebuchadnezzar, leads to his debasement And he becomes the worst of all possible beings one could be. There is a danger when we attribute our accomplishments to ourselves. There is a danger when we fail to recognize the very sovereignty of God in the affairs of our lives and the the affairs of all of history and all that transpires. And so Nebuchadnezzar would learn very hard way that God is in control. So that in verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes not toward himself, but toward heaven. And my sanity was restored. Talk about God's grace. If there was a man who it would not have been unjust to leave in that awful state, God in his grace leaves no man in that state who would so repent and acknowledge the Lord as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so even Nebuchadnezzar was so moved by God to turn his eyes towards heaven and receive his sanity. And when we are sane, we recognize that God is the most high and not us. That when we return to our sanity, we say things like, Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Now, Daniel's a pretty good writer, but Nebuchadnezzar could really speak, can't he? And when we are made sane, we can really glorify God and give him praise. We can do all kinds of things that we otherwise would think would be impossibility for us. 
and yet God somehow does something beyond belief to make us more like we are meant to be than we've ever been before. And so Nebuchadnezzar seven years before said, look what my hands have made. But now seven years later, he says, how could I say such a thing? God is the most high. He is to be praised. It is only then that we are truly sane. And it is only then that we are truly as God would intend us to be. So, back to Daniel chapter 1. The theme of the book of Daniel is not prophecy, although I love prophecy and it's filled with it. The theme of the book of Daniel is not what is going to happen and what are the events that are going to ensue that will lead to the coming of Messiah and the setting up of his kingdom, although the book of Daniel gives us some of that information. The theme of the book of Daniel is God is in control. And we can trust him to work out his plan, whether we understand it rightly or not, his plan will go forth. So how then are we to respond when we recognize God's sovereignty? Take a look at verse 9. This, I think, is the most important verse in the entirety of the book of Daniel. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. That is the most important word. In the book of Daniel. Why has Daniel become the man that he becomes in writing the book that he writes? Because he determined he would not defile himself and he would walk faithfully with God. There aren't too many individuals in Scripture about whom that can be said. Of course, Yeshua is certainly perfect, but of all this all the characters in Scripture, there's only two about whom no evil is recorded. Joseph in the book of Genesis and Daniel in this book. But what we read about here of Daniel, we get a reason why. Remember, he's 15, 17 years old. And he determined that he would not defile himself. He was determined to walk faithfully to the best of his ability. We know he didn't do it perfectly, but nothing is recorded in his life that would suggest otherwise. But he did walk faithfully before God. And what a great man of God he became. It didn't matter what the Babylonians attempted to do. Notice how they tried to sort of re reform these men that have been taken captive. They attempted to make them Babylonians. They attempted to make them more like themselves rather than like their God who chose them. But Daniel was determined not to be conformed to the image of the Babylonians. Daniel was determined not to be conformed to the image of the world in which he found himself. This is Paul's words to us. Be transformed and not conformed to the world's standards. What did Nebuchadnezzar try to do? Number one, he tried to teach him the ways of the Babylonians. Notice, Daniel learned them very, very well. Like Moses, who was skilled in all the knowledge of the Egyptians. Like Paul, who was knowledgeable in all the way of the rabbis. Yet none of them failed to recognize Messiah, in the case of Paul, or recognize the true hand of God. One can live 
circumspectly before God in a fallen world, in a world in which it attempts to conform us into its image. No matter how powerful the pull may appear to you and I, we can be Daniels who are not conformed in the ways of the Babylonians. We can be Moseses and not be conformed to the ways of the Egyptians. We can be Pauls and not be conformed to the ways of rabbinic thinking that would reject who Messiah is. Didn't matter what he learned. He learned it all, but he was not transformed by what he learned. You can go to secular university and learn and not be conformed into its teachings. Those who tell you you must hide from such things are not telling you the truth. Some of the places where we need to be are in those secular universities where things are being taught that are contrary to the things of God. And we need to learn them well so we can defend the truths of God's word in the light of those things. If we're going to insulate ourselves from what is going on in the world and we think we're living a holy life, we are deluding ourselves. Daniel could learn all the knowledge of the Babylonians. He became a wise man among the Babylonians. He became one whom the king of Babylon sought out because he had knowledge. And he it was well recognized by those with whom he learned. But it wasn't just how he was taught. It was how he was wined and dined. They fed him the choice foods that the king himself would eat. They gave them the choice wines that only the king himself would drink. But he would not be wined and dined. I'll never forget Early on, Mary Lou will remember this, early on in our ministry in Maryland. And there was a local church near the one I was pastoring that was going through a conflict of some kind, which I I don't really know much about. And they showed up at our church. And it was very small at that time. We were barely, you know, starting to make some tracks. And attendance was very slowly growing. And this was a very sizable church. And a number of their elders who were leaving and they were thinking of forming another church were looking for a pastor. I didn't know all this at the time. And I didn't really much have much of a clue about it either. But they came and they heard what was going on and they saw the worship and the praise and the teaching of God's word. And one fellow said to me, hey, how would you like to come with me on a... Uh, what was it, a plane ride to uh, Atlantic City for something? I don't even remember what it was. I said, a plane ride in like a private, not jet, but one of those prop planes. I've never been one on before, very rarely. I said, yeah, let's go. So I went for a trip, and I took one of my students with me. And so the two of us went with him, and we just, I don't know if he wanted one of my students to come, but I just thought, this is fun. How about, you know, this fellow coming with us? And so we went. He was going through some things, and I wanted to just... Uh, try to be a blessing to him. At the time, I think the Orioles were in the playoffs and he had playoff tickets and he took me to them with a bunch of these other guys and I'd never been to a playoff game or a World Series. I said, let's do this. You know, I, I don't know if it was Boston and them or the Yankees, I can't remember. And then it dawned on Mary Lou, not so much on me. Hey, you know, these guys are whining and dining you. I said, really? <laughs> Is that what that was? You know, I just thought I was going for a plane ride. And I was going to a baseball game. Fortunately for me, I wasn't lured by it, not because I didn't enjoy it, 
I just didn't have a clue. I was just, you know, dumb. But Daniel and these guys, they knew. But what do they say? We're not eating this stuff. We're not going for those rides. We're not going to that game. We're staying put. Because that food was offered to one of the false gods. And that food was meant to ensnare us, not to feed us. But that's not all. Not only did they teach them so as to be, to reject the ways of God. Not only did they wine and dine them to lead them to choose to reject God, but then they changed their whole means of identification. Their names were changed into these Babylonian names. And that's why I don't like to make reference to them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, although it sort of rolls off the tongue. A little more effort, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But their names were meant to take away their sense of God. You notice with the name Mishael and Daniel, the word El is the short form for God, short form for Elohim. Daniel's name means God, my God, or should my judge is God, or my God is judge. And Mishael's name is who is what God is like, or who is like God. And Hananiah and Azariah, the end of their name, Ah, is a short form for the sacred name of God. Like Joel, the Yo is a short form for the sacred name of God. Yah is a short form for the sacred name of God. And so Hananiah means God, the Lord, is gracious. And Azariah means the Lord is my helper. So these guys had names that reminded them of God in their life. And all the names they were given were Babylonian names that honored the Babylonian gods. And we come to the most important verse in the Bible, in this book. Verse 8. But Daniel determined not to be defiled by a name change, by a status, by a few more letters after our names, by a new title. He was not going to be defiled. By being wined and dined, more money, more prestige, more honor, more recognition. And he wasn't going to be defiled by the things that he might learn. He was going to be faithful to God. So the question that this raises for us is, what is it that the evil one would use to defile you? What is it that is in our lives that would seek to turn our attention from God and rather to ourselves or to that which is not God. And so we need to be very careful because God wants us to be holy in his sight. Undefiled means to be holy. So we ask, why should we be holy? Here are some thoughts that I have. Number one, we should be holy because God commands it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, be holy for I am holy, says the Lord, quoting from the book of Leviticus. He commands us to be holy. Second reason is if we love God, if we love Messiah, we will be holy. Because in John 15, three times, you don't have to turn there, but you can read it three times. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. What does he command? Be perfect as my father in heaven is perfect. 
What does that mean? Be holy. That's what he's telling us to be. In the very least, it may mean more, but it means in the very least, we should be holy. We should not be defiled by the things of the world, by the things that people put in front of us, by the things we ourselves put in front of ourselves, by the things we value. We have to be very careful not to be worshipers of other things, worshipers of the Bible, worshipers of our disciplines, worshipers of whatever it might be that interests you and interests me. So why should we be holy? God commands it. Why should we be holy? Because if we love Messiah, we will do what he tells us to do. Why should we be holy? Because the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so the holiness that we are to emblemate or we are to manifest now is a prelude to the holiness of perfection we will experience then. If we are not experiencing holiness now, why would we think we would look forward to it then? It raises the whole question of these deathbed conversions. Someone has said that they believe perhaps 99% of them are false for the very simple reason. If during their life they chose not to follow the Lord and to live holy, why should they choose to do so in the last few moments of their lives? And I say that with regard to my members of my own family. But I say that to you and I because we are not on our deathbeds. We are alive. And we have who knows how many more years to go. If you're going to think about your deathbed, you're making a serious mistake. Because no one knows when that will occur. And scripture is clear. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Why should we be holy? Here's another interesting thought that I had. It comes out of the scripture. It's not my thought. Paul thought, but struck me, is that God does not save us to bring us to heaven. But the scripture is very clear. He saves us to make us holy. Just to show you uh, on this passage, because it's sort of surprising. But in Ephesians chapter 5, and of course we're familiar with it because Almost every marriage we hear it. Why, uh, excuse me, husbands, love your wives just as Messiah loved the congregation of believers and gave himself up for her to make her holy. So, why did the Lord die for us? Not to get us to heaven, but to change us. And that's why Paul says, we are being conformed into the image of his son. What is that image like? It's holy. And so when I read that verse from Daniel, Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Holiness is a two-way street, of course. I remember in one of my classes in Dallas Seminary with Dr. Ryrie, when he talked about the work of the Holy Spirit and manifesting holiness. He said, holiness is 100% the work of God and 100% the work of humanity. I said, wait a minute, you can't have two 100%. He said, oh, yes, I can. I just said so. 100% God, 100% our response. Daniel resolved in his heart, 
not to defile himself with the king's allurements. And God, in his grace and by his mercy, enabled him to do just that. I think more often than not, the problem, of course, is never, ever with God. And as much as we speak about holiness or desire to do what is right, we all know there are many times when we would prefer not to. And sometimes we just react and we find ourselves just not doing what we should. But as we look at the book of Daniel, we're reminded of two things at the very front end of the book, and they have nothing to do with prophecy, although the book of Daniel is filled with it. We read in the book of Daniel about the precise moment the Lord will appear in chapter 9. We read of the events that will occur that will precipitate his return. We read of the unfolding of history leading up to Messiah's first coming. And there are interpretations of dreams and miraculous occurrences that Daniel records. All that's in there and all of it is fun and enjoyable and interesting. But the book of Daniel is about the sovereignty of God who brings all of that prophetic stuff to fruition. And it's about the holiness of individuals who can only see it, appreciate it, and rejoice in it when they resolve in their hearts not to be defiled by the things of the world, but rather to be energized by and find delight in the things of God. We can only so find delight in the things of God when we are most like him. And when we are most like him, then we are truly sane. And when we are most like him, we give him the glory and we devote our lives to be lived so as to glorify him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this morning of worship and praise. What a book Daniel is, but we've only focused really on two verses. And what insight is to be found therein. Lord, you are the ruler of the universe. You are the sovereign Lord. And so, Father, help us to embrace that truth most fully. And to find joy and solace, comfort and rest and peace in it. Whatever transpires in our world comes about because you, Lord, have meant it to be so. And then, Lord, we as ones who recognize this truth and many others about you have the responsibility to resolve in our hearts not to be defiled by anything that would turn our attention from you, for that is what it means to so be defiled, to be ignorant of who you are, and to be living a life without you. So Lord, may Daniel's example as reflected throughout this book and his companion be the challenge before us moment by moment and particularly week by week as we go through the book of Daniel together. And may we be like him in determining 
to not to be distracted from you and your grace. For we pray in Messiah's name.